0: In uh, Dostoevsky's novel, The Idiot, Prince Mishkin, is thrust into this culture that's obsessed with wealth, but he has no greed or envy, and he refuses to treasure money just for himself. And he's so abnormal in this culture that people don't know what to think of him, and so they eventually just label him the idiot. And this story raises the question of, who's the real idiot in this story? And shouldn't it cause us, especially if we're Christians this morning, living in a very avaricious, very greedy, very wealth-obsessed culture, whether people outside would find our lives offering much of a contrast at all? Are we idiots? Are we fools for Christ when it comes to money? So what if we didn't water down what Jesus is trying to convey here? What if we didn't explain them away with all sorts of qualifications, but took them seriously, took them to heart as individuals and as Christians that are part of this church? Or those of us who aren't yet Christians, consider how we may actually be worshiping something. We're not worshiping nothing, we're worshiping something, and perhaps that's money. And what if we concluded that Jesus is making a legitimate proposal for an alternative way of life for us as individuals in an alternative society called the church that's so carefree with money, so committed to giving and sharing of our resources that it looks idiotic. Jesus gives us three reasons that we should at least consider this alternative way of life. And then he gives us two alternatives, three reasons to Take money off the throne of our lives, and then two alternatives to the way of life that most of us have been pursuing daily. So, first of the three reasons one is that he is saying that money and possessions and things are transient. In 2007, I bought my first, what I considered my first nice car, and it was a a Volvo wagon. It was a station wagon, but it was a turbo, so it was really fast, and it had leather. I'd never had a car with leather in it before, had power, everything, had a sunroof, and I drove it into my neighborhood after purchasing it, and my neighbor across the street was out in his yard, and he said, wow, that's a nice car, and I was like, yes, it is. (laughs) The problem was that I bought a Volvo, which I thought would be very reliable, very sturdy, but I bought one with a a rebuilt title. And what that means, and I knew it going in, I knew it was a risk, but I got it inspected. And what that means is that a car, when it's in an accident of some sort, a certain percentage, if it costs a certain percentage of the car's value, they basically just give the owner a check and then they sell the car to someone who's gonna rebuild it, salvage it, and then sell it, basically wholesale. So I bought it this way, saved a lot of money, And about a week later, I noticed a small blemish in the paint above the driver's door. And I didn't think much about it until it started over the next number of weeks to begin to spread. And if you've seen the Volvo, I still own it, it looks like it's been rubbed with sandpaper all over it. The paint just basically peeled away. And then the sunroof broke in the open position. (laughs) Then the driver's seat got stuck in the recline position. It still has a wrench in it that I've pushed it up, and it has it just basically leaned against this wrench. Then I noticed a leak in the back, and the, um, the carpet was all wet, and then the back door wouldn't unlatch. Uh, and then whenever I unlocked the car remotely, the rear windshield wiper started wiping, <laughs> which was a neat trick. I had been so excited about this car, I had poured over Craigslist, I had read review after review, I thought about what it would be like to sit in these leather seats and to cruise around California, we lived there then, and I savored this car. And when I bought it, I would walk by the window, it would be sitting in the street, and I would admire it. What a great car. And more than that, I thought I had arrived, because I was able to afford this nice car, But really, I wasn't. I was able to afford a rebuilt title, titled Volvo V70, that didn't really run that well and work very well. It was all a sham. It was all a charade. And this pleasure of ownership of this thing became this huge headache that still haunts us, haunts me, (laughs) seven years later. Especially when Elliot kicks the wrench out from the seat while I'm driving. Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. What he's saying, friends, is that we tend to value what is transient and ultimately worthless, and we tend to overlook that which is priceless, that which is offered as a gift. And when we obsessively run after material possessions, we are setting ourselves up for disappointment after disappointment because the things that we do manage to possess, they rust, they fail, they lose value, they can be stolen, they fall to pieces. And, as I quoted in your bulletin, Colin Campbell, it's a central fact of the modern consumer behavior that the gap between wanting and getting never actually closes. So what we have tends to lead us to disappointment, and once we get it, we want more. It's not only transient in nature, but money and possessions have this darkly powerful effect on us. Or maybe I should say our hearts reach out for these things. Our dark and corrupted hearts use these things in a a very powerful way. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There your heart will be also. It's this depressing image, this powerful description of someone saying, you see that over there? There's your heart. That's your heart. Where your treasure is, there's your heart. And money, like we saw with anger last week, is a diagnostic tool of what our real commitments are, not our professed spiritual values, but what our real spiritual values are. It diagnoses our loves because our money flows towards that which we love. And so you can point very tangibly to something and say, there's my heart, because my money has flowed to that which I love, and now my heart is wrapped up in that thing. Jesus goes on to say that the eye is the lamp of the body, and if your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. It lets in light into our body, but if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness the right things can't come in. And so it's not precisely that money and possessions corrupt, it's that they're the object that we use for self-love, that they're the object that we use to focus upon, that our physical, just as our physical eye surveys the, the lay of the land, and it shows us where we're able to walk. It helps us to see pitfalls and holes. It gives us perspective for our body to follow. Jesus says we have a spiritual eye. And what you focus on, what you gaze at, either brings light into your life or it brings darkness. And the more that we focus upon the transient, the more that we focus upon the material, the more we fall in love with it. And the more easy it is to say, very tragically, there's my heart. There's my heart over there. The theologian, scholar N.T. Wright in his wonderful book, Simply Christian, says, You become like what you worship. When you gaze in awe, admiration, and wonder at something or someone, you begin to take on something of the character of that object of your worship. And it's why we talk about every week, we talk about offering, this time of offering, not simply in utilitarian ways, that is, we're giving in order to sustain the work of the church, but in that giving and offering up a tangible resource is a way of discipleship. It's a way of aligning our hearts with Jesus. So three reasons. One is that three reasons we need to rethink our relationship with money and things is that things and money, possessions in this world, are transient, they're corrupting, and most alarming, they're enslaving he says in verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. In C.S. Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader*, the character Eustace is this well-bred, well-educated cousin of the, of the Pevensies. And he has these imaginations and fantasizes about riches and power. And one of the times he's in Narnia, he meets this, or he comes upon this dragon, and he watches it limp out of its cave and fall to the ground by this pool and die. And so this presents Eustace with the opportunity to investigate this dragon's cave, this dragon's lair, which he finds is filled with coins and jewelry and precious stones. And he sits in the cave, and he begins to ponder all the ways that he can use this newfound wealth he imagines what this secret treasure can do for him. And he gets so lost in his imagination, he falls asleep in the dragon's cave. And he wakes a short time after, and he feels awkward. He feels a little bit lumbering. And he doesn't feel like himself. He lopes out of the cave and to the side of the pool, and he looks over the edge, and in the reflection, he sees with the alarm that he's become a dragon himself. And Lewis says sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart, he had become a dragon himself. We have to realize not only that possessions and money and things are transient and they're corrupting, but we have to realize what the love of money and things does to us. We've all met people like Ebenezer Scrooge who have become their possessions, whose possessions own them and drive them, and pull them along. And this is why God cares. This is why Jesus is giving this teaching, because it's not because he feels lonely and he wants your fealty and your worship. He wants you to worship him because he cares for you. He wants to loose you from your love of money, your love affair with things. It's not because he wants you to go without or he wants to deprive us of cool things, but it's because in his fatherly love, he wants to keep you and I from impoverishing ourselves. In fact, he wants you to be rich, but with possessions that will fulfill instead of disappoint. Three reasons to consider rethinking our relationship with money and wealth. Two alternatives. For another vision of life. He says, first of all, store up in heaven. But store up, that is, become rich, lay up resources for yourselves, treasures in heaven. In the Canterbury Tales, which all of us probably tried to read in high school, it's very difficult. Uh, the Parsons Tale points out that Judas Iscariot complained of waste when Mary Magdalene anointed Jesus with this costly perfume. And here we see Judas playing the part of the elder brother in the prodigal son's story that we read last week. You see, Judas Iscariot, like the elder brother, is a hoarder, while Mary Magdalene and the prodigal son are spenders. But you see, there are two sides of the same coin. One is prodigal and careless with wealth, while the other is beholden to it and hoards it for themselves. But neither gives. The philosopher Aristotle argued that free spending is a lesser evil than hoarding because at least it includes a first impulse, a generous impulse, even if it's directed inward. And the goal of ethics, the goal of virtue, is to redirect that impulse outward towards someone else. And that's much easier to do with someone who's a spendthrift, a prodigal, than someone who is cold inside and a hoarder. And Jesus' prodigal son's story, parable, seems to argue along the same lines. And it's really more of a commentary on the stinginess and the hard-heartedness of the elder brother than the extravagance of the prodigal brother. And most greedy people, of which most of us maybe not are all the time, but we wrestle with greed. Most greedy people, like the elder brother who is threatened by his father's acceptance, are the most insecure. You see, this elder brother still has his possessions. He still has his father's approval. But he so staked his life and his happiness on those things that no one certainly not his younger brother, should be able to treat those things cavalierly and get away with it. He's so insecure that it turns him into a policeman. He's got to police everyone else's use of money. And many greedy people do that, whether we have a lot of things that represent that greed or whether we're poor and greedy. What greed makes us do is it makes us police everyone else's choices. It makes us police what other people have how other people spend their money, all the while being jealous because we're insecure about what we have. We're insecure that we may not be able to get what we've staked our happiness on. You see, the older brother knows how precarious his happiness is. And that's why he gets so irate that the father runs out and embraces the son who spent his wealth. He's going to get away with it? We can't have this. And this is why Jesus, only a few verses later in Matthew that we read, talks about worry and anxiety and fear. Because the more that we stake our claim on things that are physical things, the more we stake our happiness on those things, the more insecure we become and the more that we have cause to worry. And this is part of redirecting our heart, our eyes away from money, when we see that it's transient, it's corrupting, and it's enslaving us to worry and fear. But more than that, we need this alternative vision because what Jesus is saying is store up differently, in a different place. He says store up treasures in heaven. And we Protestants have a hard time with images or passages that seem to lay emphasis on our work, on some sort of reward. But Jesus is not saying that you'll be saved by your treasures in heaven, but store up. Think of money differently. Think of riches and wealth differently. And of course, Jesus believed and he taught about this wonderful future for God's people that was coming after death. But generally, that's not talked about in terms of heaven. And that's not what he's talking about here in terms of just few weights. Forgo earthly pleasures because your heavenly pleasures after death will be so extravagant. Although that's entirely true, that's not the argument that he's making here. What he's saying is to begin to treasure life now in a way that is consistent with your treasure in heaven. You see, when your joy is wrapped around the things that bring joy to your heavenly Father, when your joy is wrapped around the things that will be true and will be valued in heaven now, you can make eternal investments now. He's not saying disavow yourself of all earthly possessions because they're worthless and your riches will be in heaven waiting for you when you die. All true, not what he's saying here. Instead, we can begin to make eternal investments now, that our treasure can be with us now insofar as it aligns with the treasure of heaven, what heaven treasures, what heaven runs after, what heaven values. And so instead of that grotesque image of pointing to a car or a closet full of clothes or a bank statement or a wine cellar and say, there's my heart right there, when your resources go towards alleviating the burdens of someone else, when your resources are expent on reducing individual or systemic poverty, when your resources go to ministry to prisoners, when your resources go towards clothing and education and Christian friendship for an underprivileged child across the world, when your resources go towards expanding the ministry reach of your church, you say, there's my heart. When you begin to treasure those things, you say, that's my heart, that's my joy, that's treasure in heaven because it's an eternal rather than a transient investment. We need an alternative vision for what life could really be like if we were disentangled from our things. And then secondly, give. And I'll end here. In our series on work in Ephesians just a few weeks ago, Paul highlighted that one of the motivations to work hard, to use the skill that we have, is to have not only enough for ourselves, but in order that we would have something to give, that we keep other people in view as we go to work and say, this is not only for me, but it is for them, it is for that person, it is for the person who's poor, who's hungry, who's burdened that I go to work. And revisiting what Jesus said, the eye is the lamp of the body, and if your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of life, light. Translators have, have had a really tough time with this word for healthy, because it can mean simple, it can mean good, it can mean healthy, it can mean working properly, but it can also mean fixed or focused on what is good. And there's a lot of ancient sources that are contemporary to Jesus' time that use this word in haplos, in terms of generosity. it's not just good, simple, healthy, working properly, but it's fixed upon something that is good. It is fixed upon bringing generous resources to other people. And we even have a contrasting term for that. You've heard giving someone the evil eye. That is looking down upon someone because you wish them evil. You're hoping for their downfall. You're giving them this disdainful, policing, corrective look. That's giving someone the evil eye. Your eye has ill intentions for them. A good eye is hoping for their good. A good eye is generous. A good eye has liberal thoughts towards what someone else should have and could have. And so giving, see, is not just the goal, but it's part of the cure. Because insofar as you have a good eye and it's fixed upon others' good, that lets the gospel, the light of Jesus, into your body. It begins to change who you are. It allows Jesus in. When you begin to fix your eye generously upon the things that Jesus cares about, it begins to change you. And so giving is actively disentangling your heart from the things that are transient and corrupting and enslaving. What Jesus is saying here is not do this or else. Jesus is saying do this so that you can be free. Do this so that you can have joy. Do this so that you can know what life is really all about. It's less of a command and more of an invitation into an alternative reality. And he's saying, join me in giving away your riches for others so that you can become genuinely, eternally rich. Near in that passage that we read in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. One of the more captivating discoveries of the 20th century was the discovery of King Tutankhamun's tomb, better known as King Tut. And in opening this tomb, this sarcophagus, there was fabulous riches. There was gold. There was rubies. There was these incredibly valuable things that were basically encasing a dead, slowly rotting corpse. And in contrast, the corpse, King Tut, was the most worthless artifact. Everything else still had residual value. It was enormously expensive, and it was an encasing a dead person. Jesus, when he died, had no riches in his tomb, and when the women went to the tomb, they found nothing. He was completely impoverished and yet fully alive. He was completely poor, and yet full of joy because he had given up everything for you and for me. Instead of hoarding the riches that he had, that no king, no pharaoh, no hedge fund manager could even understand, that would boggle their mind, he gives it up. He gives it away. He gives his riches to you so that you and I who are poor may become rich. We may become rich unto giving. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us to think this text through for life this week. I pray that for some of us, this passage would comfort us, would steer us towards what is good, would encourage us. For others among us, we need this passage to haunt us to follow us around this week as we go about our life entangled in our things and our hopes. Father, I pray that we would be people with courage to take this passage seriously as individuals and as a church. That we would be able to live lives that are so contrasting to the values of our society that we would be looked at as fools, as idiots in the way that we carelessly give away our wealth. Lord, let us do that, not so that we would be congratulated, but that your gospel would go forth and that you would be lifted up and magnified in the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.